0: What a foretaste of deliverance. That when we look upon the empty cross and the empty tomb, we get just a a taste of resurrection life that we too are wrapped up in in Christ Jesus. And so we praise you this morning, our good and gracious Father, who has sent Jesus to rescue a wayward people, to make us your sons and your daughters. Would you encourage us as we open your word this morning that we might look upon the empty tomb with with fresh eyes, that our hearts might be encouraged, that you might strengthen us in the power of the resurrection. We pray this as we continue our worship through your word this morning. Amen and amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Let me open my Bible here. As we, we celebrate the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we rehearse the gospel story every week when we gather for worship, and, and today is a day we want to zero in on and emphasize the glory of the resurrection, that death itself had no power over Jesus, that Christ is indeed risen. Amen? Amen. And so to focus our time, we're going to look briefly this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So go ahead and if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. If you need a Bible, some folks are coming around and can get one to you. Um, we're going to look at the whole chapter, but we're going to just zero in uh, for our reading on the last few verses of chapter 15. And as you're finding your place, let me, just, uh, let me just ask you this question. I'd like us to have this question kind of in our minds as we read our text this morning, as we think about what it, what it means, what Easter is all about, is, the, is this question. What is the significance of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Like if this, is, if this is just a myth, a couple of overzealous disciples trying to rally a crowd, would it matter? Or, or even more, what are the tangible benefits of the resurrection of Jesus for all those who believe in him? Is this just a theological idea that kind of stays up here, or is it, does it actually do something in us and for us? So with that question in mind, what is the significance of the resurrection of Jesus? Let's read our text. First Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start all the way at the end of the chapter, verse 50, and just read verses 50 and 58, 50 through 58, excuse me, as our, as our primary reading this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth I tell you this, brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's holy word for us this morning. And Easter for us is an opportunity to consider the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead is the central reality And foundation for our faith. It centers on a person. So it's reasonable for us to ask the question, what is the significance of his resurrection? In my argument, I hope the takeaway this morning, when you leave here in just a few minutes, is that the significant truth and anchor that we have is that Jesus' death and resurrection secures full deliverance from sin and secures eternal victory for all who believe. That his resurrection secures for us deliverance, freedom from all of our sin, and eternal victory for all who believe. Full deliverance and eternal victory. And and I think the rest of chapter 15 helps us see this big idea, that it entails we're delivered from sin, we're delivered from satan our enemy who is the and the father of all our enemies we're delivered from death which is deliverance from being mastered by flesh and blood and we live in the victory that is now ours both here and in the life to come so let's get after it full deliverance and eternal victory now you can turn your page back if your bibles like mine to the first part of chapter 15 The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this letter to the church in a town called Corinth. This letter was written to uh, Corinthian Christians, and their whole world was being changed by this Jesus and the message of Jesus. And in chapter 15, Paul was making the case that the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that he actually came back to life has implications for everyone who has faith in this Jesus. And that they too will experience the power of this resurrection themselves. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, which is primary importance, what I also received. This is the message Paul also received from Jesus himself that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, the disciples, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Paul writes, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he also appeared to me. Paul says this is of first importance, This is primary, Paul says, that Jesus died, that he was buried in the ground, and that he rose again on the third day, as was prophesied in the scriptures long before these events came to pass in history. The core of the gospel message is this, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised to new life. We've talked about this before. It's actually a simple uh, thing to remember on one hand. Christ died for our sins and was raised. It's a simple reminder. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And then we get one of the because statements about Jesus' death. Why did he die? Skip down to verse 17. If Christ had not been raised, Paul says, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. What is he saying here? See, there was a movement at this time in history, in Corinth, and in the culture, even among the Christians, among the church, that denied a bodily resurrection. Like, resurrection doesn't actually happen, was the thinking. And this was unsettling for people, you could imagine, who were hoping, banking on a glorious future resurrection. And Paul says, look, if resurrection is off the table, if this isn't going to happen, verse 16, then even if Jesus wasn't even raised from the dead, because you say that can't happen, obviously, if Jesus isn't raised, then you and I are in a bad spot because we still are under the weight of death and the curse, right? And this is the mystery and majesty of Jesus' entrance into creation to accomplish His saving work. It's both... Dying for sin, which we celebrated and considered two nights ago on Good Friday. The weight of Jesus bearing our curse and putting it to death in his own body. And his rising again to show mastery, to show power and authority over sin. And the sting or curse of sin, which is death. We'll get into that in a second. But Paul is saying, in Jesus' death and in His resurrection, you are—we are—delivered fully from sin. We are fully delivered from the curse. We are fully delivered from its effects. Its effects. You are free. Jesus says, or Paul says, if if Jesus has been resurrected, you are free. You are liberated. You are unshackled from the sin that once held you. Verse twenty. But, but is a great biblical word, by the way. It really is. But, in fact, Paul says, if Jesus has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, the, the first harvest, if you will, of those who have fallen asleep, those who have experienced death. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man, Jesus Christ, comes also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. The curse that you and I bear because of the sins of Adam are wholly and completely undone in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. And they are yours fully, completely by faith. We all die in Adam. You want to live? in Christ you live. Have you thought about what it means to be delivered, fully delivered from sin? Sin, not just the evil that we do, but, but sin is the bent of our, of our nature, right? The, the, the bent of the nature of all humanity. Martin Luther talked about how the will of humanity is bound, held in bondage to the curse of sin, And how we we actually need not better methods about how to live our lives in bondage, but to be freed from those chains. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave mean that you and I can be freed from all bondage to sin. Sin's curse, sin's hold on who you are becomes who you were and who you are no longer. In Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, we don't have to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul reminds this same group of Jesus followers, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, passed away, been put to death. Behold, the new has come. It's one of the most significant and hope-filled promises of the resurrection of Jesus, that you are now delivered completed and finished. You are delivered from sin. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul continues verse 24. Then, he says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, excuse me, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign, verse 25, until he has put all enemies under his feet. First, we are delivered, past tense, complete, delivered from sin. Second, we're delivered from Satan, and by extension, every enemy. Think about that. We were once enemies of God, but now we are children of God. We were once hostile to God. Now we are heirs of God in Christ Jesus. So now, his enemies are are our enemies, and our enemies are His enemies. We are now under the care and protection of His kingdom and His authority and His power, meaning that God is at work, actively at work, to fully defeat all of our enemies. He defends us. Keep reading. Verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection Under his feet. Here's the picture here. God the Father has anointed and crowned, in a sense, God the Son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. He has crowned him with authority over all things. And Jesus says as much when he commissions his disciples in Matthew 28, the famous Great Commission passage. Jesus says to his disciples as he's preparing to ascend into the sky, Jesus says, all authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's been given to me. And now it's not that God the Son didn't have all authority. He, he did as eternally existent with the Father and the Spirit. But God the Son put on flesh, taking on a full human nature and condemned sin in his own body, therefore mastering in his own body sin and Satan. And in His resurrected and glorified body was granted authority by the Father over all things. And as Paul says in verse 25, He must reign. He must reign as King and Lord over everything. Until, in the course of His sovereign will, He brings to an end every one of His enemies. Think about it. Every, like no enemy can stand against Him. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, it was then that the debt for all our sins was paid, and that's when Satan received his mortal wound. When judgment pierced the Son of God on the cross, it also cut straight through Jesus to the heart of Satan. And when one, excuse me, when the Son of God rose again from the grave three days later, then everyone else could see with their own eyes the victory that had already taken place on the cross. The victory was won on the battlefield of the cross, and the victory was pronounced, it was made known to the world as conquering King Jesus rode back into His kingdom, carrying the heads of His enemies behind Him when He rose again on the third day, putting an end to evil. So well, now, like a wounded animal, our enemy is a defeated foe. Our enemy is bleeding out. And because he's wounded, he lashes out. He continues to bite and devour until he's finally defeated once or for all when Jesus returns in robes of white with fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth. Right? When he'll put an, an end to evil forever. So while we have now an enemy who prowls like a lion, Scripture tells us, seeking for those he can devour, you've all seen the Discovery Channel, right? You see the cheetah go after the small gazelle, right? This is, this is our enemy seeking someone to devour. While he does this, he does not reign supreme. He is not all-powerful. And like all of the universe, he is under the rule and management of the crucified and risen king who has all authority. All. With a capital A. And if this is so, then we don't need to fear Satan. doesn't mean we don't take him and his works and his effects lightly. He's crafty. He, he's the father of lies. He hates God, and he hates God's people, and he works the deceitfulness of sin so well. But we need not fear him, because as Martin Luther wrote in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And what is that word above all earthly power? It's the name of the glorified and resurrected Jesus who died for our sins and was raised. So while you and I were once residents of Satan's cursed kingdom, in darkness and in death, through Jesus we've been transferred. We've been welcomed into the kingdom of the Son. In Jesus' death and resurrection, we have been delivered from sin. We have been delivered from Satan. Third, Paul says, we are delivered from death itself. Verse 26, Paul writes, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So let me ask, what things experience death? Anything that's alive will eventually experience death, right? And what's what's the last thing, the final thing that we can ever experience? Death, at least in this life, according to the flesh. Paul says, in Jesus, we are delivered from even death. Verse 35, if you skip down there. But someone will ask, Paul heads off the question. Someone's probably going to ask the question, wait a minute, how were the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Paul, the good teacher, is anticipating, I'm sure this is going to be confusing to some of you, how is this going to go, right? Biology 101, things made of flesh decompose over time. Almost immediately upon biological death in the human body, the body begins a process of shutting down and breaking down. It's fascinating. Maybe you're grossed out by it. I'm not going to go into details, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating. So it's not an illegitimate question. What does it mean then to be delivered from death, because I'm willing to bet most people in the room have experienced by extension, so second person, because if you're here, it means you're alive, but so second person, you've experienced death in some way, the death of a relative or a close friend or a family member. Maybe you've been there when someone has breathed their last, or you've sat in in a memorial service with a casket up front. So what does it mean then to be delivered from death if we still taste death? Well, it doesn't mean that death doesn't still happen. But it does mean that something else is also happening for the one who is in Christ Jesus. There's a transformation that takes place because of the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Right? You put a seed in the ground and that seed has to break open essentially stops being a seed, so that the material inside that seed can break through and become what it was intended to become. Likewise, Paul says, the body is a kernel, a perishable seed that someday put in the ground, and what will become of it is something imperishable. Look at verse 42. He just flat out says it. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Here's how it's going to go, Paul says. What is sown is perishable. What is planted, if you will. What is put in the ground is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body body. Adam, Paul says in verse 47, was made from the dust of the earth. We read about in Genesis chapter 2. Jesus, the true and better Adam that we just sang about, wrapped himself in dust, if you will, in the flesh of Adam but was from heaven. Verse 49 Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we bear the image, the marks, the makings of our first father, Adam. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We are marked by Adam. All humanity is marked by him. But now, by faith, we wear the mark of Jesus. Which brings us all the way to the text we read at the beginning of our time, verse 50. This is what Paul says I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I am no longer mastered by or bound by my flesh, which has been weakened under the curse of sin. And This is not a, a stoic or, or Gnostic philosophy that says flesh is bad, spirit is good. It's not what Paul's saying. We are made of flesh and blood that is subject to decay and to death and... We are spiritual beings as well by God's good design. We live life here in the flesh, but as Christians, we live this life in the flesh by the power of the Spirit of God, Paul says. And he says that this kingdom that we're inheriting is a spiritual kingdom which cannot be attained if we only think in terms of the flesh, of preserving our temporary lives. Paul goes on to say that we might not all die, but we shall all be changed. It really speaks of Paul's anticipation of the return of Jesus. That Christ will return in an instant and the dead in Christ who were put into the ground perishable will be raised imperishable. Though the flesh might die, the spirit is alive. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, we have to live here and bear the, the ripples, if you will, the residual sting of death. We still feel loss while we live here on this earth a little while longer. But to the one who is in Christ, who dies perishable and who is raised imperishable, in a moment proclaims victory over death and Satan. You can't hold me any longer. To the one who breathes his last and closes his eyes and wakes up seeing Jesus, he says, here is my victory. Think about it. The very worst of the end for us, the very worst in the flesh is death. The very worst for us is death. And, and, and in the resurrection, and in the resurrection, we look at death and go, is that it? Is, is that all? I, I don't say this to minimize the pain of loss, the hardship and grief that we so often endure as we wait for the resurrection. That is real and true and honest, and I don't, I don't mean in any way to minimize grief that we experience. But we know, but we know that it's not the end. And so Paul said in verse 19 of chapter 15, we kind of skipped over it until now. Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Meaning that if life here is all only sacrifice and fleeting pleasures and it just ends when the body dies, well, that would be pretty hopeless. And this is a caution to every one of us who might be content with a life that just ends here on itself. That this is all there is. Because sometimes the idea that someone who's focused on this life will just make the most of it over someone who's waiting for something else to come, but I don't think that's the case. I actually think that the one who has faith in Jesus is better positioned now to enjoy the life that they have here and now than someone who's only living for now and just thinks it's over when it's over. The reason I think that is this, is that I can live now full of gratitude to God for his continued grace in my life. Every good thing, every good thing that I experience now is a gift to be savored. This isn't fast food, this is to be savored. and enjoyed, and there's a taste of something even better that's coming. And not only better position to enjoy life, but better position to endure life. I think someone who has hope in what's to come isn't just checking out until they get there, that when hardship and heartache comes, that I can endure them because I know I know that all that is perishable will eventually have to be buried in the ground so that what is imperishable can come to life. And if this is true, then death is no longer a threat. As the psalmist says in Psalm 118, out of my distress, I called to the Lord and the Lord answered me. And the psalmist says, and he set me free The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as a helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. He's calling out in his distress and proclaiming, but the Lord has made me free. So death is swallowed up, meaning to put an end to the death of death in the death of Christ. And his victory over death is proclaimed to the universe as he rises from the dead. And it isn't just Jesus' victory, it's our victory. It is your victory in Christ Jesus. Verse 57, but thanks be to God, Paul writes, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are partakers, stock shareholders, beneficiaries of Jesus' victory. Think about that. He's the one who suffered. He's the one who was buried. He's the one who died. He rises again where he says, death has no hold over me. I laid on my life and I pick it back up. And then he says, oh, by the way, you get to get in on this. Even though you did nothing and actually you did what, everything that caused me to be killed in the first place. We are delivered from sin. We're delivered from Satan. We're delivered from death. Therefore, we live victoriously in the power of Christ's resurrection in this life now. It has application for us now and hope in the life to come. Verse 58. Therefore, finally we get to Paul's therefore. Therefore, based on everything I've told you, therefore my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Basically, it's this. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, your life is now not meaningless. It has purpose. Uh, Culturally, I've read some really interesting studies and words like struggling for meaning and purpose in day-to-day life is kind of a constant cultural theme and all the more over the last two or three years. The great resignation is happening in all phases of life and people are going, I'm not sure who I am and what I should do. So maybe you struggle for meaning and purpose in your day-to-day. Maybe you need some perspective to assist you in a world that seems overwhelming and full of anxieties and cares. Maybe you're enduring some really difficult challenges with very little solution in sight. Do your doubts or your working through hard questions feel less like a wrestle and more that you're just on the losing end of a boxing match? Where you're not really wrestling through them, you just feel like you're getting beat up by them. You're more confused and beat up than when you started. I've been meditating on these words from verse 58 a little this week. Steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord. What does Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus, have to do with these things? I think resurrection victory says this, that I can be steadfast, meaning unwavering, Not because I'm so strong, but because I'm no longer burdened by my sin and my old self. That I really am a new creation. That the Spirit of God really is working in me, is really sanctifying me, is really shaping me to look more like Jesus. So that while I might not always see drastic changes, I can know that the one who began this work in me will continue this work in me. There's steadfastness. Victory now says I can be immovable, or I'm called to be at least, Paul says, immovable. Not stubborn. This is not stubbornness, Paul is turning into a virtue, but unshaken, that even in my doubts and questions, that there are some things that are secure. There are some things that are firm. There are some things that we can still hold on to. I can have confidence in God's love for me in Christ. I see it on the cross. I see it in the empty tomb. God showed His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That He will always provide for us. That if He, in love, would give Jesus, will God not also with Him graciously give us all things? I think He said that. So I can be unshaken where Paul says, immovable, immovable. And he calls us to abound in the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? Let me ask you, what has he called you to do? Where has he planted you? Where do you live? Where do you work? Where do you study? How might God glorify himself through your hands and feet and mouths and work in whatever you do? How might we together exemplify and walk in what the prophet Micah says? What does the Lord require of you, people of God? to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God, that we can be a generous people, generous with our time and treasure, because one, all that we have ultimately comes from God, and so it's not ours anyway, and two, we don't get to take any of it with us when we go anyway, time or treasure. So, how might God have us abound in all that we do? In all that we give and as worship to Him, because we know that in the resurrection, in the life of Jesus, our labor, our time, our generosity, none of it is in vain. None of it is worthless. It's received by God as the worship that it is, and it's used by God and multiplied by God for the advancement of His kingdom. See, we don't want Easter to just become a cultural, religious artifact, Something on the calendar, everyone has it on their calendar, whether they believe in Jesus or not, because it just shows up as U.S. holiday Easter, right? We don't want the resurrection to become just a theological bullet point, and we don't want the regular worship of God that we practice week in and week out as we read the scriptures, as we sing songs, as we pray, as we partake of communion together. To just become empty ritual. I want to remind us this morning of the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. That these promises that are laced here are, are held out to us as an invitation for everyone who's trusting in themselves, everyone whose hope is in this life only, that there is more for you in Jesus than perhaps you realize. And that the promise of the resurrection is for all those who have faith in Jesus. Not just deliverance from sin, although it is that, amen. Not only deliverance from Satan and from any of our enemies, although it is that, amen. Not only deliverance from death, that we no longer have to fear it because there's something more, something better coming on the other side, but it's also that too. It's all of that. And all of these crowns of victory are ours today, that Jesus' death and resurrection secures for us deliverance from sin, from Satan, and from death, and that in His glorious resurrection we share in a victory, in a power that is ours now, and that we live in together for all eternity, for all who believe. Let's remember and celebrate this reality as we glory in the death and resurrection of Jesus together. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we confess I confess. I need to be reminded. We need to be reminded regularly of the glorious and simple truth That Christ died for our sins, was buried in the ground, and rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. That if Christ hadn't been raised, if there's no hope for our being raised, then we are indeed most pitiful. But, But we know That you, indeed, Jesus, have conquered death. And in your conquering of death, you offer to us life. Would we glory in, rejoice in, your death and your resurrection this morning? That we would, by faith, believe all the more that we have been delivered, that we are no longer under the curse and under the power of sin and Satan and death? Would you help us to glory in the, the victory that is ours? Because you, Jesus, are the victor. Would you cause our hearts to fill and our mouths to spill over with gratitude and our worship? Cause our hearts to to be willing to confess our sin as we come to the table and just release our mouths with worship and praise for your forgiveness and your grace to us. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.